0: Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Jill Paul, author of the new novel, The Collector's Daughter. Jill's novels have been USA Today, Toronto Globe and Mail, and Amazon bestsellers. And her novels have been translated into 20 different languages. Jill, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. I'm delighted to be here. Wonderful. If someone hasn't yet heard about your new novel, The Collector's Daughter, how would you describe the novel?
1: It's the story of a woman called Lady Evelyn Herbert, who was raised in the very upper echelons of the English aristocracy at the beginning of this century. And she became the first person in modern times to crawl inside Tutankhamun's tomb, which was incredibly brave of her when you think about it, because she did, had no idea what she might find inside. Um. Immediately afterwards, she wrote to her uncle saying it was the greatest moment of her life. But that triumph turned to tragedy when her father died four months later from a random infected mosquito bite. And the British press started saying that there had been a curse on the tomb, which is something that I know Eve believed at the time. So I've written the story of her life, starting when she's in her 70s, looking back and trying to remember what she did with an artifact
0: that she had stolen from the tomb. All these years before. And I'm curious do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to writing the collector's daughter? Doc-
1: all my novels come from a subject that I've been passionate about for for years and Tutankhamun was always a huge interest of mine. I was able finally to go to Egypt in 2011 and visit the Egyptian Museum in Cairo where they they had most of the artifacts there. I've also seen the Turing exhibition when it came to London in 2019 and they're just actually magnificent it's it, it's really hard to understand that a civilization more than 3000 years ago had such incredible artistry and and you know the tools that they must have used to you know before modern technology to get these very intricate designs it's just always fascinated me
0: and what kind of research did you do when you when you started thinking about and and working on the collector's daughter
1: I just start by buying hundreds of books. <laughs> <laughs> I'm terrible. I really should just go to libraries and and read there, but I'm a big book buyer. I just find, you know, rare book sites. I'll just order whatever I need so my office gets full very quickly. And then I just sit and read through that, everything I can find online. All Howard Carter's archives are online at the Griffith Institute in Oxford, so they can be accessed there. And of course, there's the on-the-spot research, like going to Egypt. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to go back there last year for a final little trip to Luxor, but... Um, Fortunately, I'd been before. I've also been to Highclere Castle in Berkshire, which is where Eve was raised, which is now the um, location for Downton Abbey. If any of your listeners (laughs) watch that on television, It's, it's, it's wonderful. It's much smaller than I thought it was going to be, but really very intricate and beautiful. And it was lovely for me having written about Eve to see the place where she actually lived.
0: That's great. And I'm curious about your writing process for one of your historical novels. Do you uh, plot out and kind of have a timeline so that you're lining it up with history and knowing what you need to research? How's How does that work for you?
1: Yeah, um, I do have a timeline. I mean, the research comes first, although I might have a vague idea what the story is going to be. A lot of it will come out of the research. And then I write a ridiculously long outline and this is just a method that i've developed for myself i don't know if i would recommend it for anybody else but it's kind of halfway between a plotter and a pantser as they say because um, my outlines will be about 35 to 40,000 words like half the length of a novel almost and i would just write the story of each chapter what a plan is going to happen without stopping to you know to find the perfect description or the right word I'm just getting the story down off the top of my head and feeling the shape of it and fitting it into a chapter structure and I'll get to the end of that outline I'll usually show it to my agent and editor at that stage in case they want to cry out about anything and then I'll go back to you know chapter one line one and start and and write the whole thing properly. So, yeah, I don't know whether I make life harder for myself, but I've got that security of knowing that um, I've got the structure in place and that I've fitted in the dates in the right order. Because I do try to stick to the facts where they exist and then, you know, shine my fiction torch
0: through the gaps between the facts. Sure. Well, what was your writing journey that led you to writing and getting your first novel published?
1: Um, I think probably like most people you interview, I always wanted to be a writer when I was young. And I worked in um nonfiction publishing after university and art book publishing. And then I worked with I worked, I commissioned biographies and autobiographies at Pan Macmillan. And always writing myself. Um, but it, I was in my 30s before I finished a novel that I sent to an agent and got taken on. And it was really quite a straightforward, old fashioned journey back then because I was taken on by an agent. She sent it out and I was taken on by a mainstream publisher. But, you know, the journey hasn't been completely smooth since then. But I now have um, my my main publisher is Morrow in New York. And I have a wonderful editor there who we always talk about what subject I'm going to write next. So before I dive in and go off at a, a random tan, um, rabbit hole, as you tend, you know, when you're <laughs> researching, you find these rabbit holes and think, oh, that'd be a great novel. I'm not always right, but she is. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, I'm curious. I mean, I know you said that you worked in nonfiction publishing. Did your work in publishing has do you think that's impacted your your own career and in your novel writing, just in terms of knowing the process?
1: I do think it has, Jeff, because um I've kind of drifted into writing biographical fiction. Um, so that's uh taking the stories of a famous person from the past and um, fictionalising it and trying to imagine what it felt like to be them at the time. So I suppose I'm using some of the the techniques that I learned when I was publishing non-fiction biographies, although it's quite different, you know, there's a huge difference between um, non-fiction biographies and a fictional um, biographical novel because uh, we we can get away with a lot more. (laughs) The um, biographer can say what happened and when it happened, and they might be able to speculate on why it happened if they've got letters or diaries by their subject. But, you know, we novelists, we can just leap straight in there and tell you what what our subject was thinking at the time.
0: (laughs) Well, well, given your success uh, with your novels, what writing advice would you offer for those who are working on their own stories and novels?
1: Oh, gosh. You know, I've written, I'm on my 12th novel and I still don't know whether I'm qualified to give advice to anybody else because (laughs) I've just found a method that sort of works for me. I suppose just keep going, keep trying. And if you finish one novel and it doesn't, this is the really hard bit. If you finish a novel and send it out and it doesn't get a publisher, it doesn't get an agent, the really tough bit is to start another novel. But keep going because the whole time that you're writing, it's like, you know, lots of people say this, it's like a muscle. You are getting better all the time. You're getting better at story shape and um expressing yourself and also read lots in in the genre that you want to write in Um, because that really gives you a sense of what shape the stories should be.
0: I'm curious, before you submitted that first novel in your, I think you said your late 30s, had you written other novels that you didn't feel like were ready for submission?
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, I don't think I completely finished it, but I have a very, a very autobiographical one that I wrote in my twenties <laughs> about a disastrous love affair, <laughs> which which I really hope nobody ever finds. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, what novels or nonfiction books have you read recently that you enjoyed?
1: Oh gosh, I'm reading the entire time. Um I usually stick within the historical fiction genre except when a friend's recommendation makes me step outside and one recommendation earlier this year was The Searcher by um my goodness is it Tana French Irish writer right and it's- it's absolutely wonderful. It's about a Chicago a retired Chicago detective who arrives in a tiny village in Ireland to just enjoy himself, do up a cabin and and do some fishing and he finds out about a local boy who's disappeared and he can't resist investigating it, but it's so atmospheric. It's absolutely wonderful um another one i read recently which um was taylor jenkin reed's um malibu rising which is just fabulous um it's just pure escapism really makes you want to take up surfing <laughs> and it's set <laughs> in malibu all, all in one day as um some siblings organize a big party and uh, yeah that's real escapist holiday reads <laughs>
0: So in your in your own life do you remember um when you first started reading what what books or authors kind of captivated you?
1: Um, I liked witches and fairies and um I have a photo of me aged about 4 sitting reading a book which is <laughs> Esmeralda's Enchanted Eyes, I think it's called. <laughs> and It's a big book, but yes. I loved Heidi by Johanna Spyri. Have you come across that? I have not. Uh, it was written in the 1880s, 1890s about a little orphan girl living up in the High Alps, and she's forced to leave her grandfather there and go into town. And I cried my eyes out every time. It was the first time I really came across the power of literature to move you emotionally.
0: And and I'm curious, when, do, when did you first start writing after you, you know, obviously had this love of reading? Do you remember when that happened?
1: Um, I used to write a magazine um, at the age of about eight that I just distributed okay. to our neighbors, you know, and handwriting every copy. We didn't have a photocopier. I don't think any of them survived. They must have been pretty, pretty darn.
0: <laughs> and
1: uh, I just carried on through my teens. I lived in Spain. Um during my late teens, early 20s, and um, tried to write the whole time I was there, mostly short stories. I wasn't tempted into full-length novels at that time. That came later. But it was in my 30s, I found a writing group called Writing Space, which is in North London, where I live. And it was a woman called Carol Cornish that sat us all down around her kitchen table every Friday evening for two hours every Friday. And she would put strange objects in the middle of her kitchen table. And to start with, we had to describe these objects. It might be you know, something that we taste and we had to describe the taste or an unusual smell or a rough texture. And we had to find a way of getting across in original language what this was about. And it was a great exercise. And then we'd go on every week and we'd discuss different aspects of characterization it wasn't the kind of reading group where you sat and read long extracts from your own work in progress right. it was more about learning the tools of the trades but she she was fantastic actually that's one tip to go back to your earlier question i do think that if you can find a good writing group then that really helps
0: and i'm curious did you stay in touch with any of the people in that group
1: i am yes loads <laughs> of them Yes, <yeah. laughs> it's because it's so personal you know when you're writing um that you learn so much about the other people, you know, I've been to their weddings, and, uh, yeah, no, know we're still friends, and
0: that's great. And, well, where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you and your historical novels?
1: Okay. My website is jillpoll.com dot com, and uh, that's got all the links to. I'm on Twitter, facebook, Instagram, um TikTok. I think I have a TikTok account here, but <laughs> trying to be modern. and um, Yeah, no, I really love hearing from readers. And if there's any book groups that would like me to drop in virtually, I do that quite a lot. So, yeah, please do get in touch.
0: That's great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Jill Paul, author of the new novel, The Collector's Daughter. The book is on sale now, so go buy a copy. And Jill, thanks for doing this interview. It's been lovely to chat to you. Thank you. Wonderful. Thanks a lot. Now stay tuned for a brief excerpt from the audiobook of The Collector's Daughter, By Jill Paul. Performed by Imogen Church. Available from Harper Audio, wherever audiobooks are sold.
2: London, July 1972. Eve opened her eyes a fraction and saw an old man sitting a couple of feet away. He had silver hair that receded on either side of his brow, leaving a widow's peak in the center. She shut her eyes again and watched the fuzzy shapes that glimmered and danced in her visual field. The next time she opened her eyelids, the man was still there. Behind him, she could make out a white room and the rectangular shape of a window. You're back, he said, with a choking sound, as if he was overcome. She tried to focus on him, blinking against the light. His eyes were red-rimmed behind wire spectacles. He was wearing a suit and tie. She looked down and realized he was holding her hand. At least, the hand was attached to an arm that led up to her body, so it must be hers. But she couldn't feel it, couldn't make the fingers respond. That wasn't good. You've. Had one of your funny turns, Pipsqueak, he said. You're in the hospital. You've been here before, and you've always come bouncing back, so I'm sure you will this time. His voice was wobbly. He had been crying. She looked around. There was a tube in her other arm attached to a bag with clear liquid in it. She remembered she'd had one of those before. Who was... The man, was he her father? She frowned. That didn't feel like the right answer. He couldn't be a doctor because he wasn't wearing a white coat. Maybe he was her husband. Oh, she said. But the word wouldn't come. She remembered that too. She must have had a, what was it called? A stroke. Strange word. Strokes should be gentle, the way you stroke a dog or a horse, but the types she had were cruel. They stole bits of her brain and didn't always give them back again. Her husband, that's who the man was, she remembered now, and his name was Brograve. Sir Brograve Beecham. He was saying that she had been good as new after previous funny turns but he was lying. She remembered the tedious weeks of rehab, when people spoke to her as if she were a child. She had to learn to talk and walk again, and afterward when she got home, she always felt a bit less herself, as if a chunk had been taken out of her. She closed her eyes, exhausted at the thought of all the hard work ahead, and slid. Into drowsy sleep. It was five to six when Brograve left the ward. Their daughter, Patricia, would be waiting outside the entrance at six, hovering on the yellow lines. If he was late, one of the parking attendants would tell her to move on. At least this time he had good news for her that Eve had regained consciousness. It had been almost two days. He stopped to blow his nose and lifted his glasses to dab his eyes before stepping into the revolving glass door. Oh, thank God, Patricia said when she heard the news. Did you talk to the doctor? What happens next? When will they start the speech therapy and physio? Always impatient, just like her mother, Brograve thought. He allowed himself a faint smile when they think she's ready. You know how it is. I'll come in with you tomorrow. Thank God she's awake. Did she know who you were? I think so, he said. I hope so. I went to your flat, by the way, watered the plants and picked up the post. Uh, There were a few letters that have been redirected from Framfield. They're all on the back seat. She clicked the indicator and pulled out into the traffic. Brograve turned and saw the pile. He tried to reach back through the seats, but a twinge in his lower back stopped him. They would wait till he got to Patricia's. I should move home to give you and Michael your privacy, he said. Nonsense, Dad. I won't hear of it. You'll stay with us until Mum's ready to be released from hospital. You know you're useless at looking after yourself useless, he thought. That was unfair. Mrs. Gerald does the cleaning and laundry, and I'm sure she would leave me supper on a tray. His voice tailed off. Eating on his own, in front of the television set, was not an appealing thought. He pictured himself doing the washing up, then having a nip of whiskey in front of the ten o'clock news, and it made him sad. No, maybe he'd stay with Patricia and Michael a while longer, if they'd have him. He sat at their kitchen table opening his letters while Patricia prepared dinner. There was an electricity bill, a bank statement, their tickets to a forthcoming dinner at the House of Commons. One letter addressed to Eve had an Egyptian stamp on it and had been sent to the country house in Framfield they had sold the previous year. He hesitated then opened it. Dear Lady Beecham, it began. The letterhead was that of a university in Cairo, and underneath was typed, Dr. Anna Mansour, Faculty of Archaeology. He skimmed the letter. We have recently discovered the tomb of an ancient Egyptian man known as Maya in a site at Saqqara, As I'm sure you know, he was the overseer responsible for the burial preparations for several kings of the 18th dynasty. He left detailed notes on papyrus that we have been interpreting in my department. We are puzzled because there are several key anomalies between the items Meyer says he left in the burial chamber of Tutankhamun and the catalogue of the excavation made by Howard Carter in the 1920s. Since you are the only person still alive who was present at the opening of the tomb, I would very much appreciate an opportunity to ask you some questions. I will fly to London at your earliest convenience. Brograve put down the letter and scratched his brow. Before this latest stroke, he knew Eve would have been happy to talk to Dr. Mansour. She was knowledgeable about Egyptology in general and could cite chapter and verse on the discovery of Tutankhamun's tomb in 1922, which had been funded by her father, the late Earl of Carnarvon. What did Dr. Mansour mean by anomalies, though? The records would never match up after three millennia? Weren't there supposed to have been a couple of robberies in ancient times? And everyone took souvenirs back in 1922. He thought of the gold box Eve had kept as a memento from the tomb, a stinky old thing with some kind of ancient ointment in it. That wouldn't have appeared in Howard's catalogue. How should he reply to this letter? He glanced at the date and realised it had been written in April, three months earlier. There was no rush. Academic studies tended to take years to complete. He would wait until Eve was better, and then she could reply herself.